Well, good morning, everybody. I assume you good morning me, but you can't tell when you're in a place like this, but it's good to see everybody today. I just added up quickly while we were looking, um, looking at other things. There are 47 people online, that's 47 links, and looking at the families, quickly added up, so it's about 90 something people online today for the service, and that's really great. It's good to see everybody here today. And today we're looking at John's Gospel, chapter 2. And uh, if you have your Bible, you might want to open it at John's Gospel, chapter 2. As you know, we're looking through John's Gospel, and we've reached chapter 2. Last week, we focused on John the Baptist. And Ben led us in that, and Mark referred to John the Baptist a little earlier on too. But in John, chapter 1, verse 17, it says this, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You know, some people you meet show lots of grace. That's their natural uh, personality. They want to show love and acceptance and warmth. They're the most popular people on earth. Often they're extroverts, they're the life and soul of the party. They're the top of everybody's invitation list. But uh, people like that often find it very difficult to, to direct, to confront, to correct. It's just not in them because their dominant characteristic is grace. They don't want to point out error or to point out the truth when things go awry, especially when there are things that need correction or need to be put right. They are full of grace, but some people lack truth. Other people, on the other hand, show lots of truth. They want to show and point out what's right, what's true. What they want to keep people on track. They can't stand fuzzy edges in theology or people's understanding of God. They find their greatest uh, fulfillment in understanding something or explaining something or correcting something. It's easy for them to put other people right. They're often more introvert types, thinkers and contemplative types. But it's also easy for these people to get upset at every deviation from the right path. It's not difficult for them to become legalistic and narrow. And make sure you read the right version and the teachers you, have, you listen to, make sure they're the right ones and on the approved list. Push to extremes, they'll find it easy to put people right. And... Uh, they find it really difficult to embrace anybody who doesn't come up to their narrow ideals. They're full of truth, but they lack grace. But John says about Jesus, he did not fall into either of those categories of either grace or truth. No, it says about Jesus, he was full, that's verse 14 of chapter one, he was full of grace and truth. He was not half grace and half truth. He was full of grace and full of truth. He shows warm, inexhaustible, beautiful grace. But he's truth, the personification of truth. He is the truth, full of grace and full of truth. John Newton, who was passionate about the truth, but he also showed so much grace. He once wrote to a friend about working this out in church life, and he put it like this. If a man will love Jesus, I will love that man, whatever hard name he may be called by. My differing from him will not always prove him to be wrong unless I'm infallible myself. 
Now, why do I start like that today? Well, because John chapter 2 is divided into two concerning, divided into two concerning Jesus. Chapter 2 starts like this. On the third day, perhaps meaning three days after John the Baptist presented Jesus to the world. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he said. Or perhaps it was the third day of the week. It doesn't really matter for us today. But we're told a wedding took place in the scruffy little town of Cana in Galilee, the rundown, despised area of Galilee. In wedding culture in the East, weddings were huge, prestigious affair, lasting days, they often are still today. And the hosts would frequently sell everything they had to put on a great show, a wonderful celebration. In this story, it appears that Mary had some hosting role in charge. And this is what we read, John chapter one, uh, chapter two, verse two. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus, the mother of Jesus, was there and his disciples. They'd been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for, the, for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now go and draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests had had too much to drink. But you saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed in Cana in Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Now, we don't know whether Mary had some sort of hosting role in this, but it appears that she did. Was it a family member maybe getting married or was she the caterer that employed for that job? It appears that she had that hosting role because under normal circumstances, she would not have known about the terrible disgrace of running out of wine. And she certainly wouldn't have been able to uh, instruct the servants, but she did hear. So she came to Jesus. They've run out of wine, said Mary. She realized it was a disaster. Maybe the family was very poor, didn't have much. But whatever the reason, they ran out of wine. So Mary goes to Jesus and in a succovoce way says, they've run out of wine. To which Jesus replied, woman, why do you involve me? My time had not yet come. Now that sounds harsh, almost, woman, mind your own business. But that's not the, the context at all. The word he used for woman there really means my dear lady. It's used by Jesus on the cross too, when he said to, to John, behold your son, uh, your mother, and to John he said, woman, behold your son. It's a title of great respect. In Russia, they use the word babushka, which means old lady. But it's not rude to call an old lady a babushka, as it would be here if you went up to an old lady here and said, come here, old lady. That sounds a bit rude, but not in those, that, that culture. It means a respected matriarch. 
Jesus said to his mother, woman, this isn't the time. My dear mother, I know what you want, but you don't understand. I've been at home for 30 years working in the carpenter's shop, but now I'm stepping out into my new ministry. By the way, have you ever thought that Mary lived under a shadow for 30 years? When the angel went to her and said she was going to have Jesus, she knew that she would be blessed by all mankind. She said it in the Magnificat. She said, all the nations will call me blessed. But it didn't seem to be working that way. For 30 years, she'd lived under a cloud of suspicion. No doubt the whispering followed her. That's the woman who had a son born out of wedlock, and she still denies it to this day. So in this story, I wonder if Mary was saying to herself, I know who he is. Jesus knows who he is. He's the Messiah. So now's the time to take the opportunity. Son, they've run out of wine. Here's the opportunity for you to assert yourself, to prove yourself. And oh, by the way, it will get me off the hook too. Was that what she was saying? So Jesus replied to her is very gentle, understanding and loving. My dear lady, the time's not yet come. It will come, but not yet. Not for another three years. That phrase, by the way, my time has not yet come, appears in the Gospels again and again, especially in John, but in the others too. My time has not yet come. He uses it here, chapter 7, verse 6. He said to his disciples, my time's not yet come. John 7, verse 30, it says, though the people are against him, no one laid hands on him because his time had not yet come. Chapter 8, it says, no one seized him because his time had not yet come. But then it gradually changed. Chapter 12, he told Greeks who were coming to him, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Then in chapter 13, verse 1, when he had his disciples together in the upper room, it says, Jesus knew that his time had come and he took a towel and began to wash the disciples' feet. Then in John 17, the high priestly prayer, he says at the very beginning of that high priestly prayer, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. So back in chapter two, Jesus knew that at that point, Mary didn't understand. So he said, woman, why do you involve me? My time's not yet come. Perhaps her time was not to be fully satisfied then, though it would be later. But Jesus did perform a miracle and showed his glory, but it wasn't for her satisfaction. His hour had not yet come. So what did Mary do? Well, she said to the servants in verse five, whatever he says to you, do it. By the way, they are the last recorded words of Mary in the New Testament. Whatever he says to you, do it. Good advice, isn't it? Not only good advice to us, but there are some people who perhaps give Mary too high a place. Some of us give her too low a place, but Roman Catholic friends, for example, give her such a high place that she sometimes replaces Jesus in people's thinking. But Mary's last words were, put all the focus on him, whatever he says to you, do it. And there were these six stone water pots there for washing, ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. And if Fill them up to the brim. That's 150 gallons. Five bottles of wine to each gallon. That's 750 bottles of wine. This was going to be some party, especially if they'd already been drinking before they ran out. 750 bottles. Anyway, Jesus' grace was overwhelmingly seen. 
both in his gentle dealings, firstly with his mother, and now overwhelmingly seen in his generosity in this wedding, because he's full of grace. So Jesus honored this marriage by attending. His grace was seen in attending. Jesus honored the joy of their celebration. He's not a killjoy. As John says in his, one of his letters, the commands of God are not burdensome. And he showed his concern for the everyday needs of people and he met their needs. He's full of grace. But then verse 12 says he and his family went down to Capernaum for a few days, 15 miles away. I often wonder what they talk about on these times. Love to have heard, but we weren't told. We're not told. Then he went to Jerusalem for the Passover and to the temple. And uh, the temple, of course, in Jerusalem was sort of courtyards within courtyards. The outer courtyard, the court of the Gentiles, where anybody could go. Then there's the court of the women. That was as far as the women were allowed to go, so they tended to congregate there. Then a further courtyard inside that was the court of Israel, where only the Jewish men could go. And then finally, in the middle, there was the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest went. And he only went there once a year. And it's interesting that John's gospel is a bit like that. In chapters 1 to 10, he deals with everybody. 11 and 12, he deals with women folk. Chapters 13 to 16, he deals with his own people, gathers his disciples around him. Then in chapter 17, there's the great high priestly prayer as he enters the Holy of Holies and communes with his heavenly father. But here he comes. Uh, we don't know, but some Jewish scholars even suggest that at Passover, upwards of two million people may have crowded into Jerusalem, heaving with people, with oxen and sheep and birds being brought in, doves, etc., for their sacrifices and the offerings and so on. And as they entered the gate into the courtyard of the Gentiles of the temple, they would be confronted with a phalanx of priests and temple officials. One of them would look at the lamb that you brought as a family and, oh dear, this lamb has got a sore patch behind its ear or something like that. It's not perfect. Fred, you can't use it. Ah, oh, but here's some good news. We've got a lot of pre-examined, pre-approved lambs. You can use one of them. And the price is... And a ridiculous price was mentioned, an absolute ripoff, but they did, had to do it. Then somebody else brings their offerings, but oh dear, their currency is for another, another country or another part of the country. But we have got good news. We've got money changers here who will change it into Jerusalem shekels so that you can put it into the collecting boxes in Solomon's colonnade. And the exchange rate is, and again, it was utterly ridiculous, totally dishonest, a ripoff. Jesus comes and he sees all this. And as he does so, his anger rises to fever pitch. And we see, hear him saying this. To those who sold doves, he says in verse 16, get out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? And his disciples remember that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So he makes a whip and a scourge out of cords. He drives out the sheep and oxen. He attacked the money changers and overthrew their tables. Money everywhere, birds flying, sheep scattered, oxen mooing as they were being driven out. By the way, just picture the scene. Doesn't that show that Jesus was no wimp? He was not just the gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He was a man's man. The temple guards were there, but they didn't seem to stop him. That's because he was the truth. He did it. 
He said, it's written, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? So in verses 1 to 11, Jesus is pictured as full of grace at the wedding. Verses 12 to 25, he's full of truth. Everyone loves grace, but he's also full of truth. Hebrews 12 verse 6 says, everyone he loves, there's grace, love, everyone he loves, he chastens, he disciplines. That's the truth. The fact is, you see, God loves me just the way I am. He could not love me more. He loves me just the way I am. What grace is that? Isn't that wonderful? That just the way you are, just the way I am, he loves me with a wholehearted love. He gave himself for me. But the fact is that he loves me too much to leave me the way I am. That's truth. He wants to change me. It was said of Michelangelo that when he was making the great sculpture, David. It's a huge sculpture. It's about 17 feet high. He went to the quarry to get the, uh, in Tuscany to get the marble. And when he brought it back to his studio, people would have been able to watch some of the time as he uh, made that huge sculpture. And some people said to him, Michelangelo, how on earth can you make that? How do you do it? How do you get that piece of marble? And And how can you do it with your hammer and chisel? And he said, oh, it's quite easy. He said, all I do is chip off the bits that don't look like David. Sometimes God does things in our lives that we don't really understand and don't like. But he's chipping off the bits that don't look like Jesus. He wants us to be like his son. And it's not always easy. Grace and truth belong together. So it says in verse 17, he quotes Psalm 69. The zeal of God's house consumes him. Jesus is passionate, zealous, consumed with righteous indignation when his father's house is desecrated and spoiled with things that come in from outside. But let me finish with this. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, Paul argues that the temple now is what? The temple now is you and me. We're his temple. And he's zealous, he's passionate about the purity of his temple. That's why John chapter 2 that we've read today finishes like this. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in man. He knows what's in you and me. You can't pull the wool over his eyes. So today... Meet Jesus again. He's full of grace. He loves you. And he's full of truth. He celebrates with us in superabundant joy and delight. But in so doing, he does everything to make us and keep us pure and clean. God bless you.